0: Thank you for listening to Sermon Podcasts from the Anglican Church, Noosa. This is the fifth and final in our series on Exodus, Let My People Go. This sermon was preached at Tawanton by Chris Johnson on the
1: topic of the Ten Commandments. Our readings today are from Exodus and Matthew. Firstly, a reading from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 20, which can be found in your pew Bibles on page 75. It's page 75. Exodus 20, verse 1 to 20. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you, so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning.
2: The second reading is from Matthew, chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, which can be found in your pew Bibles on page 969. Matthew 5. Verses 17 to 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfil them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: I want to suggest that the Ten Commandments are one of the great cultural icons of our society. Even although there's probably a new generation growing up who are not particularly familiar with them, the values they uh, spell out still hold sway. At least the ones loving you, about loving your neighbour do. Probably the ones about loving God, a little bit more problematic. But, you know, even when our society chooses to reject the Ten Commandments, they can't help but, giving, but give a nod to the pivotal role they've played uh, in our society. Because when they set out their own rules, uh, they choose this number 10. Richard Dawkins, in his well-known book, The God Delusion, he offers 10 rules there from an atheist website. So 10 rules for atheists. In a similar vein, CNN ran a competition asking viewers to come up with a set of godless guidelines uh, and they were giving a $10,000 prize to the best uh, set of rules and they dubbed these the 10 non-commandments. Once again, a nod to the iconic status of the Ten Commandments. Whether it's Moses or Richard Dawkins or CNN, all of these lists are an attempt to define the good and to encourage people towards what they see as good behaviour. But it begs the question, why be good? Why be good? Atheists like Richard Dawkins love to have a go at Christians Uh, His argument is that Christians only do good so they'll avoid eternal punishment or reap divine rewards. He says hell and heaven provide the inspiration for Christian ethics. And so he makes the claim that religious people's motivation is basically selfish. What do you think of that? The only problem with Dawkins' thinking is that he really doesn't understand the biblical motivation uh, at all. Uh, You see, the biblical motivation for doing good is simply grace, grace. It's the doctrine that says God loved us first. We're already loved by God, enough for him to come and to die on the cross for our sins. And therefore, we should love him in return and do good. The motivation for obeying the Ten Commandments is simply grace. Does that surprise you? Or is the Ten Commandments all about law and the only grace in the New Testament? No, look again at the passage. Look at the very first two lines of the giving of the Ten Commandments. We can have them up there. Exodus 20 verses 1 and 2. And God spoke these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Notice that... Here, salvation precedes the giving of the law. At the start of the Ten Commandments, God's reminding his people that he's the one who's brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery. He's the one who saved them. It's already happened. And so God's saying, I love you. I've saved you. Now live like this. And note the very first words, I am the Lord your God. God doesn't say, if you keep these rules perfectly, then I'll be your God. He doesn't say, well, if you can keep at least eight out of the ten, or if you can get 50% on all of them, you know, then I'll love you, then I'll, I'll, I'll make you my people. He simply says, I am the Lord, your God. I have brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. My salvation has been there for you, all of grace, undeserved, unmerited favour. Uh, I am the Lord. Some Christians think it's only Jesus in the New Testament who highlights this theme of grace and that somehow Moses in the Old Testament is all about law. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. In actual fact, grace is uh, the prominent theme of the Old Testament just as it is the prominent theme of the New Testament. Think about our series. What have the first 19 chapters of Exodus all been about? The call of Moses, the plagues to force Pharaoh's hand, the Passover, and then the Exodus itself. This is the great salvation story, my friends. And so God's saying, look at what's just happened. Look at what's just happened. These chapters tell the story of my liberating love uh, to rescue from slavery in Egypt uh, and to bring you through the waters of the Red Sea. It's a wonderful story we've been hearing over the last four weeks. And so that's the context, you see, for understanding the Ten Commandments. And the pattern there is clear. I've loved you, I've saved you, now live like this. So let's look at uh, the commandments themselves. There's a whole ten of them, so I'll necessarily be brief on each one. Uh, Not going into a lot of detail except on the first two because I think they're foundational. So the first commandment, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. This is a call to take God seriously. At the heart of biblical faith is monotheism. And that's the belief that there is one true God. As opposed to polytheism, belief that there are many gods. The idea that there's only one God doesn't start with the Ten Commandments. It starts at the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 1 verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, in its original context, that was a radical new idea. In the ancient Near East, uh, it was commonplace to believe in many gods. And you might recall from our previous series, The Air We Breathe, uh, that we looked at the creation stories of some of those other nations. And they were about many gods who got into conflict with one another. And out of the conflict, the world was made. But in Genesis, there is one true living God. There is God, a single actor, who makes it all. And there's nothing left for anything, any other deity. The Ten Commandments simply reinforce what has already been established there in Genesis, that God is one, there is no other. And what the Bible goes on to do is to ground human behaviour in who this God is in the character of God. Be good because God is good. And we define good by the character of God as it's revealed in Genesis, as it's revealed in these Ten Commandments, as it's revealed throughout the rest of the Bible. And here is an objective standard for working out what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong. You see, atheism has no objective standard Ultimately, it simply comes down to personal preference. Everyone simply works out their own idea of what's good for them and uh, gets on with it. And if you think about it for any length of time, that's not really a good foundation for a cohesive civil society, is it? Everybody doing their own thing. And uh, we're seeing the fruit of that as our society moves further away from God. I think uh, John Dixon puts it very well when he says this. He says, monotheism and morality are intimately linked. Only if there is a coherent ultimate reality imprinted on the world can there be objective moral principles. A way of life that aligns with reality and a way of life that does not. So this first commandment you see is foundational. It provides the solid ground on which the rest of the commandments either stand or fall. The second commandment, it's about not worshipping images or idols. In the ancient world, creation itself was deified. And so the sun, the moon, the earth were given divine status. And what this did was foster superstition. It was about taming capricious forces in the world. One had to placate these evil forces through the worship of idols. Israel, on the other hand, saw God as completely independent of the created order. There is one creator, God, who stands outside creation and is sovereign over it. And as we've seen uh, in our recent series, he's like an artist sculpting a world that is good and telling us that his purposes for this world are good. The problem with idolatry is that it reduces God to being merely another part of creation rather than the one true God who stands over creation. It dethrones God from his rightful place of being this glorious artist who created it all. Now, the idols may be wooden and stone sitting on the top of a totem pole, or 21st century idols made of metal and glass. An idol is simply uh, giving some aspect of creation more prominence and significance than the creator himself. It's a good definition to think about. An idol is simply giving some aspect of creation more prominence and significance than the creator himself. In today's world, it may be the car you drive, it may be the house you live in, it may be the latest toy or gadget that you've bought recently. If these things have more prominence than God in your life, they become idols. Idols. And in the end, idolatry does more than just demote God. It actually diminishes us. If you can relegate the eternal creator to a mere material object, then people also who are made in the image of God can start to become nothing more than just objects. And a sense of the sacredness of people and of life is lost. You see, idolatry eats away at our true humanity. Uh, and it is to be shunned, to be shunned. The third commandment is to not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, or as the NIV puts it, to misuse the name of the Lord your God. And this, of course, ties in with what we've been saying about the first two commandments. If there's just one God who created everything, who has no rivals, then we should revere his name and treat him with enormous respect. That is a worthy goal in itself. God exists in his glory. We should revere for him, for who he is. But this is also foundational for respect being shown for all human life. For if people are made in God's image, then we won't swear and carry on in front of them. We'll show them respect, even as we show respect to God. Uh, And so we are to uh, not take the name of the Lord, our God, in vain. We're not to misuse his name. We're to show honour and respect. The fourth commandment is to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. And you'll notice in the text this commandment is directly tied in with the Genesis account of creation. In six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested. He rested. And so there is a wonderful model of a godly lifestyle. And I wonder how much more healthy we would be in our society if we kept this commandment. Healthy emotionally, healthy physically. Because you see, the body needs rest to relieve stress, to recreate, to renew. And the soul needs rest through worship to come before our God, to recognise who God is and find our place as his creature that we're not God after all. (laughs) And there is someone who is older and wiser and smarter and stronger and to place ourselves uh, under his grace and his love afresh and to realise it afresh. And do you realise how good worship is for mental health? (laughs) Just to know that, to know those basic truths and be renewed in them every Sunday here when you come uh, as God's people together. It gives you a sense of purpose in this cold, hard world, a sense of place. Uh, it is good for you. And so uh, worship keeping is, is about keeping the Sabbath and giving God his rightful place. The fifth commandment. Here we move from honouring God now to honouring people. And specifically in the fifth commandment, to honour your father and your mother. We live in a society which tends to revere youth rather than age. And so this commandment points us to those who've gone before us, those who are older and wiser to our parents. Of course, it doesn't mean all parents are wise, but it does mean showing a basic respect and caring for parents, especially into old age. Honour your parents. The sixth commandment, you shall not murder Well, if uh, Genesis is correct, if we're made in the image of God, then all human life is sacred. Now, I think most people, Christian or not, would accept this command. However, do you recall how Jesus took it one step further? In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, it's not just murder which brings people into judgment, but being angry with a brother or sister. You see, Jesus is looking not just to the act of murder, but what's going on beneath the surface. Anger is the precursor to murder. And when you get angry, you can either direct it all to the person who's upset you, or you can take it to the Lord. To take it to the Lord and let him deal with it. To let it fester and direct it towards other is to be on a very dangerous path. And so, thou shalt not murder. Don't let it even start with anger. The seventh commandment you shall not commit adultery. Once again, Jesus defined this in terms of the heart. He said, to look at a woman lustfully is to commit adultery in your heart. And this is about, once again, treating people with respect for all the reasons we've already had in the first six commandments. It's not about denying sexual desire because, as we know in Genesis, God made us male and female. And he said the two shall become one flesh. So sex is his idea. It's something that is good in the creation. But this commandment is about honouring the sexual relationship by putting certain boundaries around it that are there for our protection. This law is here for our protection. Now, it may not be the law of the land, like murder is, but it's still a very important law for our lives. It preserves marriages. It saves families. It's a law that is there for our good. Next is the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. And I'm going to cover this when I get to the Tenth, so we'll jump over it for now because it is very much related to coveting. But the Ninth Commandment, You shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. So this is about not giving false witness in a court of law. But it also extends to any kind of falsehood towards your neighbour. It may be a malicious lie or just idle gossip or a half-truth. All of those can destroy another person, a person made in the image of God. And they are not the behaviours of a person who claims to believe in God. So be Honest and true, do not give false witness. And then finally, the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. You coveted your neighbour's ox or donkey lately? (laughs) Probably not. But there's plenty else out there to covet, isn't there? In our materialistic world. And at this point, I also want to bring in uh, the 8th commandment of not stealing. Because where does the act of stealing begin? by coveting what somebody else has uh, and wanting it for yourself. But if you've mastered coveting, if you're not coveting, then you won't want to steal. You'll cut this off at its root. Uh, In fact, I want to suggest that if you can master this one, uh, then you're well on the way to all the other commands. They will fall into place. Because you know what? To not covet is to be content. Content with what you have content with who you are before God and to know that he's your loving heavenly father and that he will provide for you and therefore you don't have to covet uh, what other people have. And I want to point you again to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says this, he says, Do not worry, saying to yourself, what shall we eat, what shall we drink or what shall we wear, for the pagans run after these things in an idolatrous way. They really think that's going to meet their deepest needs. And, and, and it's a, a, a absolute travesty uh, that they run after these things. But Jesus says this. He says, your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Yes, we do need them for our physical existence. He says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So, my friends, uh, there you have it, the Enduring Ten Commandments. What a great way to live, a great way to live. If only we could do it, totally, (laughs) totally. But do we? No. No, we fail. The wonderful thing, though, about the biblical gospel uh, is that God's grace gives us not only the motivation to, to strive for these ideals, but it also gives us us the forgiveness when we fail. And if you look at the rest of Exodus and then on into Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and the rest of the law, uh, you discover the sacrificial system that God set up, knowing that people would fail, but offering them forgiveness. And of course, that whole sacrificial system through the tabernacle and then in the temple was pointing to one true, final and complete sacrifice, which is the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so it's Jesus who makes that sacrifice, which is a full atonement for sin. And that is grace upon grace, that even when we fail to live by these Ten Commandments, uh, forgiveness is possible. But I want to come back to my original question. Why be good? Why even try to live by the Ten Commandments? And the answer? What did I say? The answer is grace. Grace. God said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I've saved you, he's saying. So now live like this. And in the New Covenant, you know, it's the same pattern. The same pattern. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He rose on the third day. Uh, That is all of grace. So live like this. And I think uh, this passage from Titus sums it up very well. Where Paul says this, When the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy the mercy of his death and resurrection. And then a couple of verses later, he gives the motivation then for good behaviour. In verse 8, he goes on to say, I want to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. So salvation is not a reward for good behaviour. No, it should be the inspiration for good behaviour. And as we understand more and more of God's grace we uh, indeed want to be good. I want to encourage you to live by the Ten Commandments, but do it because you know you've been saved by grace, uh, by that great redeeming grace of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Amen. The Anglican Church Nusa is an evangelical Anglican church on the northern end of the Sunshine Coast, Queensland, Australia. Our vision is living to love and proclaim Jesus. Our core values are being Christ-centred, Bible-based, spirit-led and mission-shaped. If you have found this sermon helpful and would like to contribute to the ongoing ministry of ACN, please go to our website, anglicanchurchnusa.org forward slash giving. Thank you for listening.